0: Hi, this is Thiago,
1: And this is Stephanie. We are from HexDevs.com, and you're listening to the HexDevs podcast.
0: We talk to developers building interesting stuff. Our goal is to share actionable insights to take you to the next level. So you can build a business, grow a team, improve engineering culture, and build useful software.
1: If you have been listening to the show and you like it, Do us a favor and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite platform. You can also leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Enjoy this episode.
0: Today's episode is with Michael Lynch. Michael is a software developer and blogger. He used to work as a software engineer at Google, but he decided to quit, and now he runs small software businesses of his own and blogs about the process. Michael has recently launched the course Hit the Front Page of Hacker News. The course teaches you everything he has learned about Hacker News after getting many of his original blog posts to hit the front page of Hacker News. It covers the site's unique culture and how to choose topics, improving your writing and what to do if your submission fails for some reason. In the last 12 months, over 80% of his blog posts have hit the front page of Hacker News, and four of them shot all the way to the number one slot. His $15,000 a month business owes its success to an effective launch on Hacker News. So make sure to check out Hit the Front Page of Hacker News if you want to get better at blogging and get more traffic from it.
1: Congrats on the launch, Michael. I've learned a lot from your course, not just about Hacker News, but writing in general. And thanks so much for being here today.
2: Oh, sure. Thank you for having me. And I, I really appreciated the feedback you gave me about the course.
1: Sure. Um, was this the first time selling a course?
2: Yeah, yeah. This is my first, first course.
1: And how long did it take you to create it?
2: Way longer than I expected. So I... I got the idea from listening to Daniel Vassalo on the Indie Hackers podcast. And he was like, oh, I decided to record my first course and it only took me 16 hours. And so I did all the slides and recording and published it in 16 hours. And I made $150,000 in the first few months. And I was like, oh, that sounds good. I, I want to make $150,000 in a few months. And I knew I wasn't going to make that much because Daniel Vassalo has a huge audience. But I thought... Like I'd been thinking about doing an info product and hearing him say that he got through it end to end in 16 hours is like, okay, like maybe I could do it in 40. And then it actually ended up being way longer than I expected. So I think I probably spent about 200 hours on it total.
1: But do you regret
2: it? I would do a lot of things differently if I were to do it over again. But I think it was was definitely good to get the experience and try doing a course for the first time.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I guess that's why some people recommend, for example, to start with a, a tiny info product, for example, right. an ebook, because it's something, it it, get, it makes it easier for you to finish it.
2: Yeah, I had thought, like, I ultimately do want to write a book. And, I, and the course seemed to me like the easier one. Like, I, I felt like, oh, a book, I'll, like, edit that forever. That'll take me a long time to write. But a course, like, Daniel could do it in 16 hours, then... That sounds pretty fast because um, with with my writing I, I tend to like want to rewrite things a lot like even my my blog posts I'll spend maybe 15 to 30 hours on a2,000 word blog post. so I felt like a book would take me a lot longer. Yeah, looking back, I don't know maybe maybe an ebook would have been an easier first first try.
1: but I don't think you you would ever know if you didn't try it first right right,
2: right.
0: So do you have any metrics about it like did you make some money? Um,
2: honestly, it's, it's a little lower than I expected in terms of revenue so far. Um, so it's, I think I'm at like 2,200 in sales on Gumroad and then, um, $600 from the blogging for devs community. Cause I gave the, the three private sessions in that community, which, uh, you both were, were part of. And, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm at like a little under 3,000 and my goal was 2000 but uh 20,000 by the end of the year so i'm not sure if i'm actually going to make that but we'll see like i know um rob fitzpatrick wrote the the book the mom test which didn't get a huge reception at first and then it spread through word of mouth um and so it could be like that or it could be that like the launch was the the biggest it's going to be and it's it's going to be just like a long tail from here but yeah we'll see it's it'll be interesting to see how it turns out.
1: Yeah, for sure. You you mentioned the Blogging for Devs community. Yes, we are both part of it, and I always like to recommend it to everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty valuable.
0: It was cool because you kind of test your course with uh, Blogging for Devs, right? So you did a couple of uh, calls, and then you shared with people, and then people gave you feedback. Did that change uh, the content a lot? Uh, like did, did the the feedback made you change things a lot or was it just kind of expected feedback?
2: No, the, the feedback, I mean, some of it was expected, but there definitely was a lot of feedback that made me change the course. So probably one of the biggest changes I made was telling more stories about my own blog. And when I started writing the course, I felt like it would come across as too self-indulgent if I was just like, oh, and then when I wrote this post, this happened. And oh, while I was writing this post, this other thing happened. Like it felt just like way too into my own writing and my own story. But like I had a few of those in the first session and people consistently gave me the feedback that they wanted to hear more of that. And like the thing that's missing from a lot of guidance online is like, Actual stories of what happened when you wrote this type of blog, and like people liked hearing about blog posts that succeeded, but they also really liked hearing about blog posts that failed and what I learned from the ones that kind of flopped and went nowhere. When I went back and and redid the those sessions because I would always do like a practice session for blogging for devs and then record the real version, I would update the slides and add in more stories that were. Like personal stories from my experience of maintaining the blog and submitting to Hacker News. And that continued to be what people responded to. And it's funny because one of the pieces of advice I give in the course that I had from the beginning is how important it is to frame your blog posts in the form of personal stories. And I completely miss the fact that that's what I should be doing in the course as well.
1: That's interesting. I think, honestly, after you do you do certain things on your own, it gets harder to see that you're the only one doing it. Right. (laughs) Maybe that was it. So, Michael, actually, we wanted to talk more about those, the backstage process of going solo founder and also about your financial independence journey. You mentioned on Blogging for Devs that Mr. Money Mustache played a huge influence on getting you started with Fire. FIRE, for those of you who don't know yet, is financial independence, retirement early. And I guess my first question for you is, what does financial independence mean to you?
2: For me, it's being able to have enough money that I don't have to worry about money, that I'm not working to survive. I'm working because the things I'm doing are the things that I'm interested in. And that's always really appealed to me about people that have achieved financial independence that you get to take on projects that the the reason you take on the projects are independent of how much money they'll earn for you.
1: How long have you been working towards your financial independence?
2: It's tough to say. I've gotten more serious about it over time. I think I started thinking really seriously about it when I was about 25. So that was 10 years ago. Because I my first job out of college was at Microsoft, and four years into it, I, I had always wanted to take some time to travel, and I knew that the longer I waited, the less likely I'd have the freedom to do that. And so I, took, I didn't take any particular time off. I had about two years of savings um, in the bank account, and so I quit my job and sold all my stuff and moved to South America and just kind of backpacked around. I purposely didn't have a return ticket or like any kind of plan for. I didn't want to have a time limit because I knew if I had a time limit, I just feel like, oh, I only have like three months left. Oh, I only have two months left. And so I, I wanted to make it as open ended as possible. And while I was doing that, I realized that that was so much fun. Like I loved being able to just wake up every day and do whatever I wanted. And so I was like writing my own software. This was before I was aware of like indie hackers or i mean indie hackers didn't exist at the time but i didn't know anybody was doing anything like that i was just like writing my own software and like had no plans for it like how to actually sell it or market it and i was learning spanish and just like meeting people and having a ton of fun doing that and then finally i decided to move home and start working again but when i did that i was so deflated to just like have to go back to a job and like have to I remember like the first day or it was actually like the second day when I I started a job again I was like 15 minutes late and my manager came up to me and was like well you know we do start at 8 30 and I was like oh I just spent a year like waking up whenever i want and not having to answer to anybody and so that experience made me really recognize how appealing it is to be able to have financial independence and it's also like when you're you're backpacking you're meeting a lot of people who have found a way to do that it's like a lot of digital nomads or people that have retired early or figured out some way of like working a few months per year and traveling the rest and so it i the the number of people i knew In in the US, who were doing that was very low. And so, just like being able to travel and meet so many people that are doing this in many different ways, it opened my eyes to how possible that is as a lifestyle.
0: That must have been brutal uh, going back to work after you mentioned two years.
2: Uh, It wasn't, it was a year of Mm. probably an employment gap.
0: And then you have to (laughs) wake up early and traffic, you know, commute, all of that. Yeah,
2: yeah, it wasn't fun. But yeah, that gave me a lot of motivation toward like, okay, and now I I I know what I want and so I have to figure out a way to get there.
0: And so you kind of did you kind of plan for your financial independence like say, oh, I need this amount of money in order to retire or be financially independent and did you calculate your fire number and all of that?
2: No, I thought about it more in terms of building a business. Like th- there's a few authors I actually it's funny, like I actually don't like them overall, but they did influence the way I think about financial independence. So, um, one of them is uh, James Altucher, and he wrote this book called "Choose Yourself," which, like, I I feel weird mentioning because I overall don't like the book, but he had this point that um, the middle class is increasingly losing wealth, and the people who are able to achieve financial independence are the people that have their own businesses, and so that really like hit home for me the importance of creating my own business. And then the other author, like same kind of feeling as like Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. I read that I think when I was in college and he talks about the importance of building up assets, just things that will continue to bring money for in for you, either passively or actively. And so when I was thinking about financial independence in my mid-20s, it was it was less about like getting to a specific number and more about like, okay, how am I going to come up with assets? How am I going to come up with, how am I going to accrue investments or like come up with a side business that can start making me more than what a salary would pay me?
1: And how did you find out about Mr. Money Mustache?
2: I had just kind of seen one of his posts in passing and didn't really understand what he was. He, I, the first post I ever read was like, he starts driving for Uber. And I was like, what is this guy doing? And then it wasn't until, Like four or five months after I left Google, somebody, one of my readers emailed me this article about the 4% rule, and I'd never heard that before. But the idea is that if you can accrue enough savings or get your living costs low enough that you can survive on 4% of your savings. So, like if you have a million dollars and you can survive on $40,000 a year, then you're pretty much set for life because. It's not that hard to accrue to to earn a 4% return on your investments, even through um, like down markets and a lot of volatility. Like long term, it's 4% is pretty achievable. And so the idea was like, I had thought about retirement in terms of like, okay, I need like millions and millions of dollars. But once it was put to me in the terms of the 4% rule, I was like, Oh, like a million dollars and forty thousand dollars a year. Like that doesn't seem that hard. I mean, I expected that. Like having a family, if it was just me, I probably could last on forty thousand dollars a year. But if I want to have a family and then I live in the U.S., so uh, if I have some kind of medical disaster, that would be very expensive and potentially bankrupt me if I only had forty thousand dollars a year. But it it put into perspective how much more achievable it is, and how much low cost of living can really influence how much earlier you can retire.
1: The biggest misconception that I see is that people underestimate how much their expenses play in their future, and right. they, they think that it's a matter of making more money.
0: Right. Of course,
1: they it help. It's not about how much you make. It's about how much you save. So do you plan to achieve your financial independence and go back to South America or go to Asia? What's in your plans?
2: No, I, I'm sort of worn out from travel. Like I think I had more stamina for it when I was younger in my 20s. Now I, I enjoy just having a home base and um, kind of being comfortable. So like I right now I live within about like a 15-minute drive from my parents and my sister. And so it's really nice having family so close by. I mean, it doesn't do me a lot of good uh, in the past year because of the pandemic. But in, in normal times, it's nice to be so close.
0: I guess you mentioned on your blog that you spend about twenty thousand a year. Is that is that right?
2: Uh, twenty thousand dollars a year. I think that was from businesses. So uh, my to- like personal expenses. I'm not sure what my personal expenses. It's probably maybe like twenty to thirty thousand dollars total each year.
0: It's pretty good. Like if you're doing a business and you you make some extra money, you can totally cover that, right? It's just a matter of finding something that works and having a couple of different uh, income sources. And it's not that hard if you think about it.
2: Right, right.
0: Was working at Google a strategic movement to achieve uh, financial independence faster uh, for you? Or was that unplanned?
2: No, it wasn't planned. It was. It's funny because I actually thought I would make less working at Google than the other companies I was considering. And I mainly chose Google because for for pretty much all of my jobs i haven't thought about salary first i've thought about like what i'm going to gain from the job and whether i'll like the work as the first concern and then thought about salary after that but i ended up getting a really good salary from google and i'm not sure if it's i'm not sure if they just this is the salary they were giving to everybody or i got a especially good deal but when I was applying, I also applied to this cryptocurrency startup, and it seemed like the cryptocurrency startup didn't know what they were doing very well, and so I, I don't think they had a good sense of what a reasonable offer for me would have been. And so I was pretty sure I wasn't going to take it, and so I just threw out a really highball number. For me, at the time I was making, at, at the time I applied, I was making one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year or so as a consultant for this consulting firm. And so I was like, eh, like what what if I just told them 150,000? Like what would they say? And so I said that to them and they were like, "Okay, yeah, that's that sounds that sounds doable." And then they're like, "Wait, is that including equity or excluding equity?" And I was like, "Um, and like I thought about it as like total compensation." And then when they said that, I it seemed like they expected me to they had interpreted it as like before equity." So I was like, "Oh, 150,000 before equity." and they were like, "Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's reasonable." And I was like, "Okay, great." And then the offer they gave me was like $150,000 plus $100,000 in equity. And I was like, "Wow, that was that's like the craziest offer I've ever received. That's much higher than anything I'd made before." And then I didn't want to work for them, but it allowed me to just take that offer letter and show it to Google and say, "Hey, this other companies offering me $150,000 plus 100k in equity. Can you beat that?" And they're like, "Uh, yeah." And so they they did $140,000 plus $10,000 signing plus $200,000 in equity. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Like, I, I went from $120,000 to basically like 190 dollars to $200,000 a year. And like, I'm terrible at negotiation. Like, that wasn't planned at all, but it ended up being um, a huge step up that I didn't expect at all.
1: I guess you just learned right away. Yeah, it worked.
2: <laughs> I was lucky that it worked out that way.
1: You, you mentioned that you are living in an area close to your family. And mm-hmm. in your blog post, you say that you moved, you bought a house and that decreased your expenses significantly. What do you think you would have done differently in terms of your financial choices besides moving to a low-cost living area?
2: No, I don't think... Like if I had known about financial independence or like discovered something like Mister Money Mustache earlier, I don't think I would have done much differently. Like it's hard to say because I feel like the choices I made worked out so well. Like I really like where I ended up, and so there's nothing like. I, I'm not. I don't look back and think like, oh, if I had only like saved more money at that point. Like I almost feel like I I should have done the opposite. Like I think in my twenties I cared about saving money. This is maybe terrible advice for <laughs> financial independence discussion. But I feel like I the amount I was saving in my 20s is so small to the amount I was making later on. So I almost wish I just like cared zero about saving money when I was in my 20s. I mean, I basically did. Like that was the nice thing about having a, a job at Microsoft is that the pay was high enough that it was easy to save. But yeah, I don't think I would have changed that much. I, I, I like, especially financially where everything ended up.
0: And that's interesting. And it's funny because when you mentioned, oh, I had a high, high salary anyway, and for a developer, that's kind of the default in a way. So developers mm-hmm. usually get a bunch of money. Yeah. And if you try to keep your, savings rate high enough you're just gonna live a good life and save a bunch of money which is something <laughs> that is not sometimes not evident or not easy to see but the savings rate is probably the most important part especially because when you look at return on investments and things like that if you're planning to be financially independent, independent soon uh, you're not gonna have that much time to grow Uh, your investments Mm -hmm. uh, just by the return is mostly more related to the savings. Right. And then Mm -hmm. by saving more, you also need less to, to live.
2: Right. Right. But I I think the other thing to keep in mind is like, if you expect your income to grow rapidly, then like, say I, if I'm making like $50,000 a year just out of college, I'm trying to save 10% of my income. That's like, Going to be a, a bit harder on my lifestyle than 10 years later when maybe I'm making $200,000 a year and it's it's very easy for me to save like $50,000. And it might make the money that I was saving 10 years before seem irrelevant. But it, it depends. Like it depends on how your income is going to change. It depends on the kind of investments you make. And obviously, compounded interest is um, really powerful and it can grow even small investments over. A long period of time, but um, yeah, I think that's it's also worth discussing, like or or worth thinking about at least how you expect your income to change and whether the the impact on your lifestyle of making savings when you're early in your career and you don't have a lot of room for savings um, is worth it relative to like how much you'll be able to save in a few years if your income goes up significantly.
1: From our experience, for example, until last year we were too fixated on the savings rate. And, you know, we, although we live a pretty good life and we were saving approximately 70% of mm-hmm. our income, but I realized that it was getting harder for us to invest in some stuff. For example, education.
2: Yeah, I think it's about optimizing, like, for... for satisfaction with life not necessarily like optimizing for um, any particular financial number or savings rate like the the savings rate can be a good guide to meeting your life satisfaction goals but it's it's not the goal in itself
1: I think everything that you go to extreme about it like you don't save anything but also you say you try to save too much that's right. probably not healthy
2: right.
0: So you were working at Google, you had a pretty good salary and mm. you're probably saving a lot of money, you have a right. good life. But then you, you've tasted freedom before and then right. you have all of this money and I guess it becomes hard to work for people, right? Can you tell me about that like how was your experience your, your experience having a lot of money but not but also remembering that freedom? Uh, was it hard for you?
2: Yeah, it's it was hard for me. I think it was hard for me when I didn't enjoy my job. Like when I was working on a team and felt good about the work that I was doing, then I didn't really feel like it didn't feel like I was trapped. Like I I liked when I was learning new things and getting to take on exciting projects. But when like toward the end of my time at Google, there were a bunch of reorgs and I kept on my projects kept getting reset. And it it definitely did feel like what am I doing here? Like I, is it just for the money? Like I'm here just to like keep earning money, or is it even worth staying? Cause especially like the last maybe nine months or so, I knew I was gonna leave. There's the way compensation works at Google, it's it's sort of clumpy. So the best time to leave is when I did on February first. It's like when your annual stocks fest and you get your bonus and everything. And so I I was debating like, should I just leave before then? Like, is it really worth like five more months of my life to get whatever, like this, this percentage of my yearly comp. Um, So that was definitely hard. And like, especially like, I think it was maybe four months before I knew I was going to quit. My team just like got dissolved and I had to go find a new team. And it was just, it felt like such a silly process because I'm, I'm meeting all these new teammates and I'm like, I know I'm going to leave. So it, it feels, it felt dishonest in a way. Like I didn't want to tell people, "Oh, by the way, I'm going to leave," because then it's it's just like weird to hang around for, uh, you know, like a defined amount of time that everybody knows you're going to leave in X months. But at the same time, it felt like very demotivating to um, just be in a job where it's it's purely for the money, and especially like those last like maybe it was like six weeks or so. It, the way it worked out was because of like vacations and holidays and stuff, I had to work, I think like six weeks total to get maybe like 40% of my annual comp. And those four weeks, it was just, I was on a like completely new team, new project. I knew I wasn't going to finish it because I knew like I was going to leave in that time. But it was just very much like showing up to work every day and counting down the hours and like looking forward to the day that I got to announce that I was leaving.
1: How did you, I don't know, how did you keep motivated? Like, did you already have a vision of what you wanted to do? Uh, Not
2: clearly. Like, I think in some ways, the the way I envisioned working for myself was really off. And then in other ways, it was really accurate. Like, I think it was very, very much incorrect in that I, I think I had sort of like a Silicon Valley startup sort of expectation of what. Running my own business would be where, like, I just launch, I just like come up with an idea for like an app, and then I find a bunch of users, and I don't really care about how how they're going to pay me. I'm just like, going to make something that's popular, and then later figure out how to monetize it. You know, like Facebook and uh, Twitter and all these things. I was like, oh, that's that's what I'm going to do. In that sense, I had it really wrong, but in other ways, um, like I I thought it would be fun to just think about like all the different decisions you get to make as. A business owner like oh i've got you know five thousand dollars in revenue so should i spend that on marketing should i spend that on more development um like there's just so many different possibilities like should i try to do like a publicity stunt should i write a blog post about what i'm doing to try to get more people interested who what kind of customer should i go after like it was really exciting to me to think about just like the amount of freedom i had especially being a developer at google you you have so little influence over the direction of the the product you're working on, like I was working on. And you're, you're also so far removed from the customer. So, like, I worked on backend stuff on the Google Maps team. So I was, like, I was probably, like, four layers of abstraction away from anything that an end user even saw. It was, like, I worked on a piece that some other system called, that some other system called that, and then, like, eventually that bubbled up into, like, a UI that the, the user could see on Google Maps, but it's it's so distant from the user. And like I, I have so little influence over the direction of the product um, because it's that's determined by like directors and managers and VPs and stuff and like all coming together. Whereas I I had looked forward to like, okay, if it's my own business, I get to make all those decisions. I can decide like what direction I want to go in and how much I want to spend on, you know, like things that I think are important, like code quality and I'll get to see if if they really pay off the way that I think they do. And now that I'm experiencing that that it's it's like exactly as fun as I thought it would be. Like I I really love being able to make these decisions about how to allocate these resources that I have, like how to allocate the resources of time and money and people working with me.
0: And one of the things that are that can be hard when you're starting a business is figuring out what to do because you're pretty sure you don't want to work as a software engineer, being separated from the users and all of that, mm-hmm. you want to take take control of your project and your product. Right. But then how how did you learn to prioritize and how do you get uh, an idea of what to do? Because it's hard. It's not that obvious.
2: Yeah, that's the thing that's, that's still very difficult for me. Um, I think the best thing that I learned was to not go too deeply into any one idea. Um, I think the thing that helped me the most was just learning that the importance of being able to evaluate the potential of business. So if I'm like two or three months in and I'm not earning money the way that I expected, or like I don't find customers that are interested in actually paying money for this, then it's a pretty good sign that I need to either move on to a different idea or like drastically pivot the idea into um, some other customer niche or um, some other angle. And that was a thing that was really missing in the first probably year or two when I was working for myself where like I would like the first thing I did was start this cryptocurrency blog about like a, a niche cryptocurrency that I knew about than most other other people i knew more about this cryptocurrency than most other people and i just like had no plan for how that was actually going to make money and like it was it was just so far removed from anything that would actually make money and i spent like a month doing these public tests on the cryptocurrency that nobody had done before but like there was no point to it it's just people thought it was interesting but there, there was no way i was making money from that and it took me a while to to really learn like Okay, you need like an actual plan. Like there it, it doesn't need to be like a formal business plan, but you need to find somebody that's like yeah, I want to pay you money. Like I'm here's a pre-order or like I'm going to order from you if you can solve like X problem for me. And a, lo- a lot of my earlier ideas didn't do that. And the the growth was just being able to um I guess bail early if I decided that. If if I could see that the idea wasn't going anywhere and revenue wasn't growing in the way that I needed it to grow in order for it to be a sustainable business.
0: And do you do any research before getting started? Like say, oh, we had this idea to do something. And do you do any research before uh, starting working on that? Or you just kind of follow your gut?
2: No, I definitely do research. And I mean, that that was the problem at first was just going by like untested hypotheses and starting to like write code and spending weeks and weeks writing code without and thinking that I would find out after it was done when often I, I didn't really need to do that. And uh, one of my friends, David Toth, who um, maintains, uh, who, who sells an app called Inkpad. He told me that when he's before he starts any project, he comes up with as many ideas as he can. And from that, he just, He just keeps coming up with good ideas that he thinks are viable and then picks the one that he thinks has the best chance. Like he, he researches a short list and then goes with whatever is the best from his list because the the point he made is that it's so expensive to explore an idea and people don't really recognize that at the time because to pursue an idea can take you weeks or months or even years to see if it's going to work out. And so the the most influence you have over how much time you're going to spend on that process is before you even decide which idea to pursue seriously. And I've really taken that to heart and I'm not as good as he is at coming up with lots of viable ideas. I think I'm just not as creative as he is in terms of good business ideas, but I do go through, I try to come up with like a few ideas before I pursue anything and think seriously about, okay, like what's the market for this? Like what are, are there similar competitors in this space? What are people paying for products like this now? Like what, what evidence do I have that people would want to pay for this thing that I'm making?
1: Do you remember any other things that you have learned after you, you left your job?
2: Yeah. One of the big lessons I've learned probably in the past year is just how powerful writing is and how it's such a huge advantage to be able to write effectively So one of the, I've been blogging for five years and I didn't really strategize much about my blog in the first few years. And I've always felt like, oh, my blog is just something I do for fun. And if I strategize too much about it, I'll make it not fun. And over time I started realizing like, oh, well, it's, it's most fun for me if people read the things that I write. It's really disappointing when I spend a month writing a blog post and then I, can't find anybody who actually is interested in reading it and so I got a lot more strategic about what topics I choose and I also realized that it's such a, an effective tool in terms of bringing attention to a business so my my current business tiny pilot it's this um, it's this little device that lets you control servers remotely so um, it's It's a tiny pilot. It's it's a Raspberry Pi rather that you can plug into a a server and then you can control it as if you're sitting in front of it. So it pops up a little um, web interface that you can type and move the mouse and stuff and see what's on the screen. And so the the thing that made that really launch was the the blog post I wrote about it. So before I wrote a blog post about it, I'd only managed to sell two units. Like there were two customers that were interested in paying for it. And after I wrote the blog post, it reached number one on Hacker News, and it was popular on a bunch of different subreddits. And there are people that have have sold similar products, but they aren't able to write about it in the way that I do. I think like I I learned all these lessons over the years about blogging and about the importance of making things a story. So like the way I wrote this blog post about Tiny Pilot was just the story of me developing it, and like little by little getting things to work that that weren't that were a struggle at the beginning and then like slowly overcoming those those obstacles. And so I think people really responded to that story and like really liked the way that I wrote it. And so that ended up driving a ton of traffic. And so for the first uh I mean to this day it's still probably the, the biggest driver of sales to the the business is the blog post that I wrote about it. And that's um, it got ri- written up on other blogs. People were just linking to this write-up I did. And I think that's a, a thing that a lot of startups miss is that like a lot of people start their businesses and then they they really struggle to get people to pay attention to what they're making, but they they don't know how to get customers interested. They don't know how to find users that would be interested. And I think they don't realize how effective it can be to learn to write really well and like how... It's something you can do for free and get people really interested in what you're working on and get people uh, interested in the products that you're selling.
0: I've been super fascinated by this idea of distribution and building a media business first. Mm-hmm. So if you look at Nathan Latka, he has a pretty much a media business. He has a podcast mm-hmm. and he has a magazine and all of that. And he got pretty good at distribution. So he. He creates content that people are interested in. And then from that, he creates little businesses related to that. So yeah. to me, when I see your blog and then when I see how you post uh, on Hacker News is a way to distribute your blog post and then is also a way to distribute your products, right? So getting attention right. to you and then to your product is a good way to make your business scale. Right. Especially developers don't really think about that. They just, oh, I'm going to write the best code, I'm going to build the best product, but they forgot about marketing and distribution, which is right, super definitely. important. Yeah. After quitting our job at Google and le- learning how to prioritize, um, how do you keep yourself motivated? Because there's a lot of ambiguity, there's a lot of doing things that don't work, or sometimes they work, but it's not exactly... Uh, how you planned so how do you keep yourself motivated and is there any pressure to keep building stuff and figure things out like do you have a pressure to make a lot of money right now
2: yeah that's a good question i i haven't ever really found a difficulty in staying motivated there are a few times where i'm working on a business for a while and it's like not growing the way i expect but for the most part i i've felt pretty motivated like i find it fun that i can just work on whatever I want and I have the freedom to stop working on something. If I don't feel like it's going well, I don't have real pressure. I just have pressure that I put on myself. I, I struggle with figuring out the right amount of pressure to put on myself. I think I actually put too much pressure on myself and that was definitely a problem I had right when I left Google. I, I was like, okay, I'm going to take on all these different projects. And then I, I felt really stressed that I wasn't making progress on any of them And then I took a step back and I was like, nobody cares. Like I made these deadlines up. Nobody's waiting on me. Like why am I getting so bent out of shape that I'm not meeting these deadlines? And that's also something I, I struggle with now with tiny pilot. Like it's the business is going really well. And one of the biggest things that is, one of the biggest challenges is just keeping up with inventory. And it's, it's like one of those things that they call a good problem to have. Like I'm, I'm selling so fast that I can't keep up with inventory, but I feel this pressure to make sure I never have to like list my products as sold out or on back order because I'm like, Oh, if I do that, I'm basically leaving money on the table. And I, I don't want to do that, but really like wh- who cares? Like it's, I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I shouldn't worry so much about like, Oh, okay. I have to list something as back ordered for a week or so until I catch up with inventory. Um, so I think it's, it's just like, being able to to step back and something i found that's really useful for me is writing monthly retrospectives so i just summarize what i did for the month and i talk about the my biggest challenges and what my plans are to address them and just being forced to like take a step back and and think critically about what i'm doing has been really helpful for me in recognizing things like oh why am i getting so worried about you know if i'm if I'm out of stock for, of something for a week, like who really cares about that? It's it's not a big deal if my revenues are a few thousand dollars less than the, the maximum they could have been that month if I was better about inventory.
1: So Michael, what advice would you give to someone that is thinking of leaving their jobs and maybe taking some time off or even just go going straight to start a bootstrapping business? I think the,
2: a big piece of advice would be to expect a lot of failure. I think the the success stories that you hear about people launching a side project, then it makes five hundred thousand dollars right out of the gate. Um, those are like obviously the exceptions because there's there's a bias toward outstanding stories, and it's a lot more common for people to try a side project or try a side business and it fails. And so I think it's really easy to get discouraged if you come in with the expectation that what you're going to do is succeed. Um, I mean, for me, like the first two years or two and a half years, I was working for myself. I like was making negative income. Like at the end of both of my first years, my uh, I had a few thousand dollars in revenue, but my costs were much higher than that. And so it wasn't until like the two and a half year mark that I finally landed on a project that started making money and by doing that i realized it's just such a thin line between success and failure with startups or or lifestyle businesses because it's just like you you could come up with an idea that seems perfectly good and it turns out to fail for whatever reason or you could just happen to get lucky and you come up with a good idea so i found that people seem to get discouraged a lot faster and like burn out faster if they have this expectation that they're going to succeed early. And I think that the people who tend to do better are the people that keep their expectations low and um, have a lot of patience and prepare for a long haul. And the, the way I've always thought about it is like, I expect that every business I start is probably going to fail. But I think that every time I do start a business, it increases my chances of success on the next business. And, you know, like just by the law of averages, like one of the businesses is going to succeed if you if you have infinite tries. Um, and so if you can plan and, and get a lifestyle where you can give yourself a lot of opportunities to keep trying, then it's going to make it a lot easier for you to succeed eventually. And just you have to maintain that attitude that it's going to take a while.
1: That was a question that I actually wanted to ask for myself.
2: <laughs> oh, sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I hope to to help more people because it, it takes a little bit of courage to take that leap.
0: Yeah, so your job is not to quit. You have to keep trying.
2: <laughs> right, right.
1: Awesome. Okay, so Michael, thank you very much for sharing your experience with us. I do hope Hack and Use course get lots of traction. I think people will... Find it out because it's a really good course yeah thanks so much for for talking to us
2: today oh thank you it was a pleasure
0: if you enjoyed this episode please support us by leaving a rating on apple podcasts also subscribe
1: thanks for listening and see you in the next episode